This is episode four of the Historical Miniature Gamers podcast. Uh, we're calling this Road to Skulls. Skulls will be mm-hmm. the first tournament that is going to be played post-COVID, which uh, we're all a part of. Dan will be TOing. Um, and uh, yeah, today we're just going to all talk about bold action. Can't see that on screen anyway. It is the best game out there. <laughs> um, we are very excited because of... Um, Post-COVID, we're able to game in person again. It's been a while. We did a bit of that tabletop simulator stuff for a while, but um, we're so excited to play the real game. Um, And just for those who don't know, Australia's probably one of the least impacted uh, countries in the world to COVID-19. So um, we have been safe and playing tabletop games for three to four weeks now. Um, And most of the clubs in Perth have been doing the same. Um, So we were in isolation for two, three months, something like that. But um, yeah, we have been happily playing bolt action for a while. And uh, for the comparison, uh, Perth specifically also hasn't had any cases for three to four weeks, something like that. So it's actually been fairly minute, safe for us to do so. Um, so we are kicking back with an event in two weeks, which we're all really mm-hmm. excited to start playing again. Um, I think we've got 20 people confirmed for um, on the side, which is the, on the side, um, which is a Outpost 6030 event, um, which is a different club to where we play out, which is the Rockingham Historical Gamers, but um, they have been holding the torch for the uh, bolt action tournament scene for many years. Um, and we're so excited to come see them again. Um, so did we want to get straight into the event? Yeah, I think it'd be good to um, have a bit of a breakdown of that. Obviously I'm, I'm the TO, so I'm across that uh, with a bit more detail. Um, on the side, uh, there's a little bit of play on words for our pathetic attempt at German, but um, uh, there's a big focus throughout the day on side mission objectives that'll get you extra points um, throughout the games. And there's also uh, a bonus prize for um, the best objective marker um, and presentation of that uh, to sort of get in the theme of having fun. Uh, but a, a big part of this mission set is going to be just taking what would be a regular rule book mission and then while you're trying to play that mission how can you actually nail these extra objectives on the side because um what what you as you start adding victory points to these things um they become the big sort of tiebreakers and so a couple of our missions technically you'd normally expect draws uh and so these side objectives are going to be very important um, so yeah, I'll run I found this. that in that it. game that we had, we've been doing some practice games at RHG for Skulls, and the game that you and I had, Jacob, that was pretty much what happened. Um, we were playing key positions, and I was I had sort of a comfortable lead build up, but key positions is is not an accumulating sort of victory point game. It's it's scored right at the end. Mm. The side missions are scored as you earn them. So it was really interesting because that game, if we just played it strictly to rulebook, would have actually ended as a draw. Um, and it yep. was really nice to be able to see those side objectives in a practice, in a friendly environment, actually deliver the difference that, that sort of we'd expected and we were hoping would be 
the case. So I've played three games of it so far. Uh, I think two in key positions and one in demolition. Um, all of them ended up in a draw for the traditional victory conditions, but it was the side missions that, that pushed us um, above. So I'm just going to very quickly give um, our listeners a uh, feel for the event. So we're playing three rounds, two hours each. Um, it's a 1,000-point army, which can include theatre selectors. Um, just having a look. doesn't look like there's too many more conditions than that. Uh, 12 order dice, um, single platoon, either if that's reinforced or theatre. Um, and the missions we're playing are key positions, which is basically the kill point mission. Uh, key positions, sorry, I said meeting, I meant to say meeting engagement. Yeah, you meant to meeting, say meeting engagement. Meeting <laughs> engagement, which is the, 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 the kill point mission. Key positions, um, which t- traditionally can be uh, D3 plus two for the amount of objectives on the map, but we're just sticking with five. So maximizing the objectives. Um, and then demolition, where um, both players have a base on the either side of the map and you have to end with a unit figure on that base to destroy it to win. Um, but the side missions, the things that we're talking about, there's one, two, three, four, five, six. So there's six additional victory points that you can get for doing these little side objectives. So um, that mission. Yeah. So that mission. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the first one off the top is He-Man, which is uh, a player scores an additional VP uh, if they destroy a unit with high explosive, which can be any high explosive, so you know, a mortar or a howitzer or you know, uh, shoot, deciding to shoot a, a, a tank shell at the HE variant. Um, you've got Crosswalk. Player scores one additional VP for any other unit other than vehicles and transport. Uh, units must be outside the transport to score points that end up within 12 inches of the opponent's table edge. Um, Sharpshooter, player scores 1 VP for any model killed by exceptional damage. Um, VAT69, company intelligence officer is trying to track down a stash of scotch. <laughs> and will offer a leave faster unit that tracks it down. To score to score one additional victory point, the player must have a unit on each table quadrant. So all, all four quadrants of, of the board. Um, so you're contesting each quarter. Uh, you've got to have a figure in each of those. Pin cushion, uh, player scores a VP if they pin out a unit. And Lieutenant Dan, a player scores a VP if they kill the opponent's lieutenants. At the end of each game, both quite yeah. All right, so then we're we're filling out a sheet and you calculate the points. So um, with all of those side missions in mind, um, yeah, uh, Dan, just run us through how to how to how does that affect scoring? Well, probably the biggest thing that makes a difference is a lot of these things are actually achievable for any army type. So, um, like if, for example, killing your opponent's lieutenant. Oftentimes, that's something that has other advantages in the game because you reduce the morale, you reduce the snap to. Um, and so it's a nice bonus. If you're going to target that unit already, it's a quick extra point that you can pick up. Um, pin cushion is, I mean, that's a funny one. It's hard to pin a unit out generally. Like in, in most of the games I've played, um, I've had maybe one or two units get pinned out over the course of um, all the years worth of gaming. 
most of the time they're killed by the time that you hit those pins. But if you do manage to do it, or if you've got someone close and you think you can do it, we'll give you a victory point. Um, the VAT 69, the scotch, that's a, that was just a nice fun one <laughs> to put in there. Um, it's, it's important to understand with that one, um, both players can actually achieve that if they've all got models in all four quadrants. Mm-hmm. Um, it still needs to be one unit per quadrant, but um, just because there's an opponent there won't stop you getting that victory point if, if you've got all four. So um, it's trying to keep it uh, easy for everyone to achieve. Um, the sharpshooters, uh, obviously, for any exceptional damage, but in reality, any kills with a sniper, we all know that snipers don't hit the broadside of a barn. So if you get the kill, we'll give you a point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so again, uh, and crosswalk and He-Man are also in that similar vein. It's um, it's it's simple things that you can do that you can get some additional points for. Generally, though, it's going to force you to do something that you wouldn't normally want to do potentially at that time in the game. So there's still a choice involved. Um, I expect what we will see is that the players that just play to the mission, the main mission, they might win the game, but they won't get the most points um, because they, if they're not focused on these side objectives, they're letting six points go. And to give you an idea on how it's um, scored overall, a win just for the game is worth three points. Um, but you've obviously got six points that are on these side objectives. So if you lose the game, but achieve all the side objectives, you'll actually have six points instead of three, um, which means that you, you'll lose the game, but you'll actually have more points than your opponent. Cool. Um, yeah, a few things that, also, that have come up with sorry, me. Also... <laughs> Go, Jacob. Cool. Uh, He-Man, um, I've, uh, I've had many... Of all my games, we've had a couple of units wipe out as a result of high explosive, um, but not necessarily the high explosive itself. Typically, it takes out a couple of units, then they have to do a pin check, and then they have to go. I don't think that counts. No. So HE Man specifically is you score an additional victory point when the unit is destroyed by the high explosive blast. So um, that means that the blast itself when it's dealing the damage, wipes mm. the unit out. So that makes it a little bit tougher because you can't just go for a 50% kill, um, <laughs> hypothetically a light mortar on a fixed weapon team. It gets the two hits, gets the kill, does the two pins, they roll you know, just high enough and they break. That won't count. Um, if the light mortar somehow manages to hit three models in that fixed team um, because of the opponent's poor positioning, it kills all three, that would count. Um, but not if they just fail the morale check as a resultant from the damage. It's got to be when you do that damage roll that you literally kill everyone. So heavy howitzers are going to be very popular. Heavy mortars are going to be very popular. Um, anything that can put out a giant sized template. It's going to be deadly. Yeah. What you got, Gotchen? There was a few cases where um, I in some of the practice matches, I made completely different decisions that I would normally make just because of some of these, some of these side objectives and how they, these opportunities presented themselves. I was playing against them. My opponent had a couple of green squads in his list. And um, just because I wanted to force the check, I, I fired, I can't even remember what it was. It was like a lone rifleman observer or something. 
um, I used his rifle to shoot at the inexperienced squad. I landed a hit, got the pin, didn't end up killing anybody. Uh, oh, no, sorry, I got the casualty, and he rolled the check, and then he added plus six pins. So now his, his inexperienced squad was at seven <laughs> pins. And I was like, oh, well, this decision's easy. Um, I take my sniper team to fire at the same squad who's out in the open and hasn't gone down. He misses completely, um, which <laughs> is what we would have expected to happen. And then, That's why when you kill someone, like, we give you a point. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping to score two victory points right there. Like, he doesn't even get the hit, 66% chance. Um, so to prove a point, I I run a lot. I advance my lieutenant onto the board because he was in reserve. Um, I advance him onto the board to sort of show them how it's done, and he takes a pot shot and he misses as well. And I was just, <laughs> <laughs> it's like one pin away from pinning out this squad, and I couldn't do it. And it was like it was like right at the bottom of the turn. Uh, and then of course he pulls the first dice. He rallies the unit to stop me. From <laughs> Because I would have done the same thing again. I would have started with the sniper and taken, try to get the two, two <laughs> try to get the pin off. There. Yeah, um, to get the pin and the the exceptional damage with the sniper and be done with it. Uh, <laughs> get the double up. But yeah, no, no, I wasn't given that opportunity. And the flip <laughs> side of that is, if I had an enemy unit there with seven pins on it, I would have ignored it for the rest of that turn. Mm. Yeah, you know, I yeah, in a normal game, I wouldn't yeah. have bothered throwing another two or three activation dice at it yeah an and it was, it, squad. <laughs> yeah that's, that's exactly right it's um and it, it's there to sort of create those decisions where you know you may not normally it, it's it's opportunity cost right so we're now presenting additional objectives where you can score points for doing something that you not you wouldn't normally do um, but this time it's got a better payoff and so the value of that choice is is suddenly higher um, as opposed to simply playing out the mission the way it is. Now, I still encourage everyone, play the mission. It's, <laughs> it's good to win games. Um, winning battles but not the war is, is not always the best way to play war games. But, um, but, uh, but definitely, you know, there are the classic ones that are there. You know, some of these are obviously ones we've pulled from other events and sort of tweaked them a little bit and put them in. But, um, yeah, we, we think these are going to hang around for a while. They're pretty popular. Um, and everyone likes sort of, I guess, an additional element, If even if the game's going bad, a way to get points back um, so that you can minimise the loss. Um, feels like the game's a bit closer then. Um, yeah, I might just continue with the side missions because I think there's a few uh, additions to... I think Crosswork and VAT69 both have the caveat that neither of those can be claimed by units that have come off from, um, what should we call it, upflank? Upflank, yeah. Yep. So um, I think definitely, uh, where are we? Do, 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 do. Be interesting to clarify if it's just yeah. outflank or if it's a reserve as well. I believe that we were planning on it just being outflank, the intent mm -hmm. being that you can't just rumble onto a flank and therefore the get a victory sides. point. Yeah. 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 Um, or a few of the fins and come off the table edge. <laughs> well, if you don't like fins, play Bulgaria. Um, <laughs> you, just, you just don't let them outflank. <laughs> um, just looking yeah, for the it, yeah, yeah, cool. wording brings up some interesting questions about deployment 
Uh, mm. I certainly found myself deploying differently because of it. I had a an interesting um, I don't, realization is probably uh, the highest praise word I can give is when we were playing key positions there, Jacob. I realized I had a I had a key position objective marker in my deployment zone, so I didn't actually park any units on that until the end of the near about halfway through the game. Mm-hmm. And what I had was I just kept one of my infantry squads in reserve. Yep. And it was just a little under six inches from the board edge. And I just advanced them onto the point, parked them in cover and left them there. Because I figured a unit not on the board is is basically invincible, right? Mm. Um, and I was like, Good well, you roll I don't on. need to... Con- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's why I waited till about turn three or turn four instead of turn five yeah. or turn six. Um, but they were veteran and, and uh, Americans ignore the, the minus one anyway. So I, I didn't mind that. I think yeah. my, the odds were in my favor for that one. So it was, uh, yeah. And, and I think there was a few things about sort of the VAT 69 mission as well that encourages a similar sort of play, having some units um, come on your that back you court. can fill. Yeah. 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 And, and actually be a lot more sticky than a spotter or a mortar or a howitzer team or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another thing that somebody brought up the other day when I was going through some um, list building scenarios is that um, not only uh, artillery units, uh, teams like machine guns and snipers could count for things like key positions, but uh, also their spotters too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Actar from Actar from over east dropped that little cherry yeah, in the yeah, uh, in the yeah. comments. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. There's 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 a use after this is like done its duty. But um, yeah. To, to clarify, I'm I'm fairly certain if the team dies, the spotter goes too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. if essentially they are still. The spotter's primary responsibility is still line of sight for that weapon. So if that mm. weapon is removed, um, mm. the spotter goes, well, back to base, need to get reassigned. So he disappears off. So he's not killed per se, um, <laughs> but he, he essentially plays no further yeah. part in the battle and is taken off as part of that unit. Um, and that's just to keep it clean. Um, you pay the points on the unit that was just killed, so it makes sense to take him off when that yeah. unit is, um, is pulled. Um, but whilst he is alive, um, yeah, you yeah. can do all sorts of things. He is still an infantry model. Um, yeah. A lot of people sometimes forget that because most of the time they just use him for line of sight because they want to be firing the main weapon. But um, he can run, he can charge, he can shoot, uh, he can hold objectives, uh, he can <laughs> jump in the back of a transport and be a gunner. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of things that, that they can do that a regular infantry unit can. You just normally don't bother because you want the howitzer firing or you want the mortar firing. Um, uh, Or in the rare case, you want the multiple launcher firing. Um, (laughs) Very rare case. I think there's one Soviet weapon that does that. But um, but largely, um, yeah, it's those subtleties that we don't often think about in in, in the game, right? And and they're the things that knowing that your spotter can able is able to hold objectives when you actually put them on the board it's now simply more than a consideration of am i doing this just for the line of sight or am i doing this now because i might want to run him on the last turn and put him somewhere yeah um so did we come to a conclusion with cross and vat yeah it um it actually doesn't say in version three of the players pack 
that mm. outflank is excluded. I think it did in an earlier version. I think and we it took did it on out. a post. Okay, right. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's not currently on the player's back, so it could be on a post. Yeah. Um, but I but I can't. I guess I'll have to look into that one and validate it on the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say on a podcast that it is or is not, and then it'd be totally wrong. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so I'll check in and and validate that on the actual day. Um, yeah, I just remembered I'm doing the, the main scoring judging for the um, objective as well. I've got to figure that out. <laughs> Justin's like, there. oh, you know, you're... It, you're going to be doing the criteria and the only criteria that you have to worry about is that it's like a 50 mil round and like looks cool. And I'm like, that is not helpful at all. Mine <laughs> <laughs> is much bigger than 50 mil. It's going to sit on a 50 mil base, but like it's going to be this huge plane on top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fine. I will. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's, there's always a little bit of, I'm going to have to be subjective about it and, um, yeah that's always viewed by people as non-subjective. So there's always that tricky part to it, but um, there will be, I guess, some sort of checklist or guide that I'll have developed to go, you know, this is what I'm expecting to see. Um, You know, there's likely to be uh, an element of cool and theme as, as weighing factors for the objectives. Um, But yeah, it's leave that to me. Don't worry about it. I'll just on the day, I can't win anything, so I've got nothing to slant it for in my favour. But, um, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what people have done. There's a few good ideas that have been sent to me already. All right. Fantastic. Um, are you building anything fancy, Gorchin? Yeah, because uh, uh, um, my, my theme's sort of paratrooper with my US collection. And this list is more uh, sort of Force Recon. Um, so this, they're, they're sort of late war. They're not doing a lot of jumps at this point. Um, they've linked up with some armored support and some pioneer platoons rather than relying on their own guys. So the theme of this one is more uh, sort of advanced forward recon. So I've only got a light tank. I've got a couple of transports. My guys are pretty well grounded at this point. But So the, the objective mark that I'm going for is a supply drop that's caught in a tree. So my 50 mil base is going to have, uh, obviously it's going to have a tree on it. Um, I've yet to stitch the parachute um but i've made the i've made little supply box and then i have to hang the supply box on the parachute and then i have to hang the parachute on the tree so it's not going to be it's not going to be glued um so it's going to be a little fragile but hopefully you should be able to actually see the supply crate swinging in the tree if you tap it oh wow don't shake <laughs> Gorchin's objective <laughs> <laughs> or tap it very gently um yeah so because because i i was looking at the scale of of the things that you know they would have been realistically and i was like i do not have a tree that big that's going to fit on a 50 mil base (laughs) and i wasn't keen on on stitching i think it was like a 12 inch parachute um (laughs) circumference and i was like yeah that's not going to happen um but yeah so that's that's going to be it's going to be fun um I've got the material and everything like that and I'm I'm working on a pattern to actually get it to be a dome because you can't just cut out a circle because it doesn't actually make a dome. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I've only got two weeks and I've yet to start stitching the parachute, but everything else is done. So I think we should be fine. Mm. I hope. <laughs> Good. Good. I look forward if to seeing a, it. If it's a supply crate next to a tree, you know what's happened. <laughs> yeah, the parachute got torn. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> cool. Oh dear. Um, oh. Yeah, and I mean, so we've got obviously um, on decide that is coming up, but um, I I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the Rockingham historical uh, events page went from like COVID with nothing to there's not a free weekend anywhere anymore. No, um, like it's just it's just packed. Jacob, can you just explain some of the things that you know about that are going on? Okay. So what is confirmed? Um, we have three events that are linked to Gorchin's Varsity Project, which we talked about on the last podcast and the last podcast, first yeah. one as well. Um, so we've got a Wings of Glory event, um, which is a scale um, miniature airplane game in World War II. Mm. So it's going to be like, you know, Spitfires and ME-109s. Um, we're going to perhaps build a mat together in the club. Um, nice. we've, got, we've got a couple of other sky mats as well. It's a really easy, simple game to get people into who've never played a war game, never played a, a board game or anything like that. But it's also got fun and thematical stuff that we're all interested in as well. It's a great way. It's a great filler game um, to chuck in at the end of a, a day. It's a great game to just get people involved. And we've got plenty of planes that we don't need people to commit to spending money to play the game. Um, we've we've played Wings. Maybe we've probably set up maybe three events so far, um, and and maybe played it once or twice on top of that as well. We've got a few videos out there on YouTube on, on how to play Wings too. Um, so that's a really fun one. Um, and then we've got a uh, firefight event, which will mirror some of the stuff that Dan set up for the firefight event we played just before COVID, which is episode two of this podcast. And yep. then um, we've got Varsity itself, which is the multi-board setup that Gorchin has made that's going to require, what, six or eight players to play? Um, six players, yeah. Six players, three boards. Um, so th three divisions of, of boards, however that matches up. Um, so Gorchin's made all of the terrain. We're really excited to do it. Um, so we've got all that. Then we put up a poll on what people want to do. And what they want to do... Because four wasn't enough. No. Um, they really the, the number one thing we got out, other than Varsity, was that people want to do the doubles event again, um, which was yeah. a, a, a 2v2 um, for bolt action. We haven't quite discussed that then, but I'm hoping we're going to do it soon. Um, don't know when, but more so, like, let, let's launch the event. Um, we've got Cruel Seas has picked up a lot during COVID. Um, so Wayne and Chris are setting up a Cruel Seas event the week before the first Varsity event. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, I painted up all of the... Um, let me click. Love it. Great. Zoom has given us post 40 minutes. Perfect. Um, I have painted up all of the 148 stuff. I really want to set up a beginner's tournament around that. And my yeah. sort of feelings on that is I'll supply a couple of armies for people. I'll supply all of the t terrain and I'll supply the unit cards. P 
people can either use the figures I've got or they can use their bolt action minis. It doesn't matter because the base size is the same and you're really yeah. measuring from base to base. So if things yeah, look no. a little bit bigger or smaller, I don't really care. I just want to kind of promote what the game is. And yeah, if absolutely. people like it, they can use their bold action minis with it. They don't they don't have to commit to to, to buying um, the figures and the rule set is free and all that kind of stuff. So that that's definitely I mean, the a figures, good one. The figures look awesome though. They're um they're really cool and and that that slightly larger scale, so more you know more I guess impressionable detail for you to mm. be able to um pick out as a painter as well. Yeah, they, they look pretty good, especially, you know, you just base coat and wash and dry brush like I do. They come out all right. So <laughs> um, maybe maybe that's the mini itself and not my painting. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, we got all that. Um, I don't know what else we're going to do because at, at the moment it's we're busy every weekend for the next month or two. Um mm. And and that's really a a passion of interest of people wanting to get back into the hobby post COVID. Um, and yeah. normally I wouldn't put this many events on all at the same time. Um, it, you mean it'd be the, a bit. You mean the seven that I counted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't put them all back to back. But um, yeah, I mean I've been I've been hungry for hobby as well. Um, we're we're going to be tired halfway through it, but. Um, I, I think it's great. Uh, oh, I'm even forgetting more. Um, then we're going to do another game family day, which is kind of like a different venue that we have like barbecues and stuff. And uh, I know that um, Chris is really passionate about Sharp's practice. I'm not sure which yeah. variant that is, if that's American Civil War or, or, or something else. Um, I, it, think it's, I think it's American Civil War. Could be. <laughs> So um, I, I will I will jump in because I, I know that they've got figures and all that um, and they can yeah. teach me all about it. Um, may as well learn another Lottie system. Um, and then I'm really keen to just launch a fistful of lead event in the same style as the 148 at some point. And that's another game where you're playing five miniatures as your army and it's a, a deck of cards for activation. It's kind of got a little similarities to, to, to bold action to, to getting your stuff to move around um, and that is gee I don't I don't know what the, the proper word is but basically it's independent of, of, of theme and and what your miniatures are your space Marines can fight um, Romans which could fight World War two figures so you can you can make some theme stuff like you know you, you, you could grab five bolt action figures for two opposing forces and set it up on, on a World War two um, battlefield and, and that would be good um, but yeah my I would like to promote that a little bit more just to show hey whatever figures you have you can play this game why not yeah and it's, it's cross genre like um, I've seen so many different um, so many different war bands I guess you'd call them yep. or teams that that, it, that have started up that people have been doing and, I, and they're like, oh, you know, fistful of lead, you know, I, I can do this and this and this. It's quite flexible, um, which mm. is nice, um, you know, and, and not being specifically tied to a miniature company is occasionally nice because you get the flexibility to get really creative or to have, yeah, or to have space marines fighting ancient Romans. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's no way knowing that that would be approachable in most game systems. No. 
I think my personal favorite team that I saw was, uh, I think it was Steve's Rolling Stones. Oh, mate. Uh, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> yeah, he quite, he quite He quite literally uh, based stones on like 25 mil round bases and he painted them really nicely and he got the grass and stuff. And then he just gave them all traits and he colored their bases so he could tell them apart. And they <laughs> destroyed my special forces Russian force. <laughs> <laughs> Crushed by boulders. Um. Yeah, uh, so then there's another thing. to say, we're busy, right? Yeah. Extremely, yeah. Um, and then there's <laughs> another thing. Uh, inadvertently, by COVID, um, the arrangements in the store that we play at the moment uh, are limited in space, and that's designed around um, social distancing, um, which should kind of fall apart in a, in a few weeks. But uh, at, at some point in time... Dan and I were, were forced into playing on uh, less than a three by three with our bolt action armies. Um, and we probably finished the game in about 45 minutes. And we have uh, given this a few titles where we, 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 we went to the table and we're like, yeah, let, let's get a game in. And we're like, all right, I can't be bothered getting out of four by six. Let's just chuck this mountain terrain on, on whatever this like. Which was really, it was really lazy because it, it was like two feet away, right? Yeah, yeah. Super lazy, but... Um, and then we're like, all right, this is small, so what are we going to do? And, and Dan's like, all right, we'll just, we'll just allow um, all of the heavy weapons to... Like, it's unli- they, they don't have the minimum range. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. So we finished the game in about 45 minutes, and we've, we've given it a couple titles, Sudden Death, and um, I don't know, there was a, there was a few, few other things that we came up with. There's a few that... Um, I think Sudden Death was the one that, that stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this game mode is awesome. <laughs> we need to actually like sit down and, and modify it a little bit, but like it gets it kills like two turns of movement and you're straight into to, to combat and we're like losing three or four dice a turn straight up. Um and Well I, I was. You were fine. <laughs> <laughs> we still had fun, right? <laughs> yeah, we did. Um so I guess the um, the purpose behind this, when we when we put it together, was that you know we we wanted to we had limited board space. We wanted to play with our full army um, at a thousand points, um, but but we're like we just like well how can we make this work? And so by by essentially saying um, no uh, no minimum range for and you can only direct fire with heavy weapons or, or something like that. Yeah, we have yeah. to work it out, like you said, but. Um, if you think about video games, there's a, a lot of RTSs have a sudden death mode where you're pre-built, your resources are preset, you're you know you're basically in the best position you possibly can be, and it's like it's like 20 minutes of absolute chaos while you try and build your force up to go take on your opponent who's doing exactly the same thing, and all your technology is the best it's ever going to be, and all your you know it's that sort of a feel mm. on the table in the board game, like we're just we just randomly sort of threw stuff down, did a very quick alternating deployment of where we were going to put things, um, and then it was dice in the bag and go. And virtually, like, even our rifles, um, they were almost 24 inches from the get-go, so they didn't even really have to move, um, which basically just made it a 45-minute shooting match, which, you know, some people, I guess, wouldn't like that. Um, mm-hmm. But for the sake of getting something fast and uh, and quick done on the table, and yes, it was still fun. 
Um, Bulgaria suffered many, 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 many losses that day. But um, but it, but essentially uh, lining things up and and going tit for tat over the terrain, but only in a almost a twenty four inch space. Um, was extremely different and it was a lot faster um the attrition rate was a lot higher um but it meant through meant that you could go through quicker so the possibilities for that uh if you know that you're building for that sort of an event you build your army differently Mm. um and and we probably really look at some of the rules and reset those and um but it was like no reserves are outflanked like everything has to be committed um and, and and you basically it's not necessarily the first dice wins because bold action doesn't work like that. But, but it was it was very much just to like just get into the action. Just this is what you're dealt with, and and just go. Um, it's quite quite refreshing. It was quite different. Yeah, um, tactically playing that really gives you a different perspective on what bolt action is like when you're engaging in closer range. Like what mm-hmm. to. Like playing one or two rounds of that will give you some expectations to what to do when you're engaging in small ranges on the real table in the real game. Yeah, um, yep, for sure. Uh, and just shows how deadly it is if you can kind of coordinate everything to be kind of in the same area. So it it, it was it was interesting. We probably need to look at it a few times and, and expand on it, but I, I wouldn't mind um, working it out and and turning mm. it into something um yeah for sure yeah um that's it'd be really good as a um go, go uh, it, it's really interesting uh that game mode would probably highlight the the thing that a lot of people struggle with in bolt action is that the the lethality of your units changes dramatically with a view, very small number of changes um, if you stick a unit out in the open or behind light cover, that makes quite a drastic difference in your ability to, to secure a kill. And then you're also talking about ranges. Uh, you don't have the range pe- penalty. There's a, there's a lot of those things that um, don't become immediately obvious until you sort of sat there, formed a gun line, and you're pinging shots at each other across, you know, uh, two feet, three feet, four feet, and you're not really getting anywhere. You know, you might score a lucky tank kill, maybe a lucky... Uh, indirect shot but then you take that all away when you're playing three by three and everything Mm -hmm. is automatically in that in that dangerous kill zone of all of your weapons or something like that it would be um a really good uh for the lack of a better word it'd be a really good drill to be like okay well i need to practice decision making in this sort of confined space Mm. um and there's a there's a lot of fun in taking something that's quite well tuned like bolt action by and large, and then intentionally removing a couple of gears and replacing them with spanners and seeing what happens. Um, yeah, and for sure. And it, 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 things like that really highlight um, how other things work and interact with each other when you do something like that. It was, um, uh, I know Nick down at the club is working on getting bolt action to, to play in 15 mil. Um, yeah. And, and at a company level and so many things, just so many of these questions just start coming up when, when you try to do that. And that's, but it's a fun exercise. Again, you're, you're learning about the mechanics by, by pulling them apart and trying to break them. Hmm. Yeah. And probably the best thing is um, 
the purpose is when you come out the other side, it's another way to play games or socialize with people or um, or just the thought exercise. Like you said, it's the drill example is is brilliant. Like I could absolutely see if someone comes to me and goes, I want to get better at playing the game. Um, it's that sort of a, a setup where you go, right, this is the situation you're given with. Let's walk through left to right the best opportunities that these units have against one another. And then we're going to play it out. Then we're going to show you what actually happens when you do what you said you wanted to do um, rather than rather than getting stuck in analysis paralysis at, in a big game, just going, I have so many options. I, I don't, I just can't process what I need to do. Um, yeah, I think there's some, yeah, it'll be fun. Um, I'm looking forward to just sort of teasing that out a little bit and um, getting revenge. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, was that too subtle? Um, so I think hey, that was then, my only um, win of the month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't don't think you're going to win at skulls. Um, <laughs> um, so I think that 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 sort of that idea of thinking about the game and and situational, uh, I guess, awareness of the table, sort of leads into the the bit of the topic that um, I wanted to talk about, which is overall deployment in a game of bolt action. Um, a lot of times I talk to players and they go, I don't have a plan. I just threw stuff down on the table. Um, that's okay if that's the way that you want to play. But certainly if you're wanting to get consistent results or if you're wanting to start to, uh, I guess, really use the synergies that are in your list and, and the way that the game works, it takes a bit more than just throwing stuff down on the table. Um, you know, we you do need to think a little bit more about, I guess, deployment is key initially. Um, it flows on to the rest of the game, but but today we're going to focus just on uh, deployment. We're not going to go through the mechanics of how the deployment works, uh, with the exception of forward deployment, because people, that's, I mean, even when I read it, I played it wrong for about two years before someone went, that's not how it works. Um, it actually works like this. Uh, and so it's probably worth just clarifying that part. Um, but we can, but we're going to be having an interactive session talking about the types of deployment, um, why certain units need to be considered, uh, I guess, assigned to certain roles, um, and what happens if you don't do that. Uh, but it would just help anyone who's trying to understand, okay, I want to start formulating a better battle plan these are some key, I guess, beginning aspects of deployment. And these, these are all things that come out of uh, uh, military history. They're not just things that we've made up. These, these will be proper deployment strategies that you can use. But um, so probably the first thing that we'll talk about is the forward deployment, just to clear that up and, and get that out of the way. So forward deployment is a special deployment rule that applies to snipers, observers, uh, spotters for other units, um, but it also can apply to certain infantry units. Uh, US Marine Corps Rangers have a different rule. They don't forward deploy, they've got something else. Um, and so that, that's not including them. But uh, Soviet scout squads, they've got forward deployment. Uh, the, and there's a few other, I guess, more infiltration style units which they get forward deployment um, as, a, as a rule. 
the simplest way to think about it is it's not actually part of deployment. So deployment in the rulebook, uh, it'll tell you you have to declare your reserves. It'll tell you whether you need to put something in first wave. It tells you where the units are going to go. Once you've decided where all your units are going to go, then you move them to your forward deployers. So you can forward deploy if the unit that we're talking about, for example, a sniper, if they were either going to be deployed on the table at the start of the game, or we're in the first wave. They're the only two triggers that allow forward deployment to go. If the model is anywhere else except on the table or in the first wave, um, it's not going to be able to forward deploy. The mission also has to specifically uh, or specifically not say to use a essentially a double negative that you can't forward deploy. So if it says that you can't forward deploy, then it won't matter how special you think your sniper is. He's coming on from the back edge or, or outflank. Um, those missions are few and far between. So once you get to your forward deployment, which is after the regular deployment, then your units can actually forward deploy. Uh, and there's some rules and restrictions around that, but that's the timing. Um, people struggle with the timing aspect. And so it's, it's after the regular deployment of your army, and you can only do it if the mission allows it, and you can only do it if they were going to be deployed on the table or in the first wave. Okay. So we'll move that aside. That's that's it, common question in every game. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, but it's a confusing one. Like I said, I, I played it wrong for two years. I thought it was a nested action as part of deployment, mm -hmm. and then there's then you run into issues with wording and, and things don't match. And the simple thing is to go, it's actually not part of deployment. It is simply a special rule that is applied after deployment is done. And then it all works out. So when I think about basic deployment plans, um, th there's really, I guess, three, three major ones that come to my mind. Um, the first and most obvious is um, what I call a, a balanced core. And that's where your army across the whole six foot table is spread roughly equally. Um, you don't have a weak side, you don't have a weak center. Um, your units are spread roughly equidistant. Um, so you have as much board coverage as you can get with, with your force. Um, those, in those cases, your units generally aren't more than 12 inches apart um, because you wanna make sure that they can run over and support uh, the units next to them. Um, and that's a very classic, just balanced deployment, just everything center, mid-center, and spread out as far to the left and right as you can, and maintaining a, an approachable distance um, for the units next to them. If you do nothing else, start with that. <laughs> don't, um, you know, don't try and get too crafty and like put stuff way out on the right flank without understanding the impact of what you're doing there. Just just, just go, everything's just going to be center mid um, as the core, and we're going to be approachable to one another. Yeah. Being able to do that means that all your units have generally got some support, most likely on the left and the right flank. Um, that's going to make your game easier. Uh, it's going to make it a lot easier because you won't find yourself getting isolated and cut apart. Um, it works particularly well um, if you've got a large amount of infantry 
because uh, you can spread those lines quite far. Um, but yeah, that, that would be instead of just throwing things down on the table, um, get a bit of an idea of what 12 inches looks like and, and keep them around that space. Um, by the way, guys, this is interactive. So ask questions or add commentary. Yeah, um, you're, both, you're both smart dudes who have um, been playing this game for a while. So, And I know Gorchen has um, quite a bit more military, uh, I guess, uh, interest and understanding than what I do in some of these things. So please jump in. I think um, specifically the only uh, realization, uh, again, realization is not the right word if you're actually just reading the bloody rule book. Um, one, of the, one of the mistakes that I always made when it came to um, forward deployment and spotters and first wave and that little balance. You know, I was also playing first uh, forward deployment wrong. I was playing. I was doing the classic mistake where you do forward deployment first, and then yeah. you deploy the rest of your army. Now that something like that makes sense in meeting engagement because there isn't a forward deployment, um, and so the net result is actually what it should be. <laughs> you do your deployment first, and then you do your forward deployment. But one of the things that that I sort <laughs> of looking back and having read the rulebook now, when it comes to the spotters. Um, for any artillery piece or mortar piece, when your uh, when a unit with a spotter arrives onto the board, whether that's from reserve or as part of first wave, and doesn't begin the game on the board, on that first activation die, you can actually move your spotter completely independently on the same die as your artillery piece, and and so that means that your spotter doesn't need to be exposed to sniper fire for an additional okay. turn for example. Something in, that typically happens in meeting engagement is you've got snipers cracking, or snipers announcing the start of the game is typically what happens in meeting engagement. Now, in that particular instance, I'm thinking it over and I'm going, there's absolutely no reason for my spotter to be on the board in meeting engagement before, before first wave. He has absolutely no business being there because the gun's not on the board and, and I don't know where his units are. And Bringing one of the things that I typically did was I would bring my fixed weapons on first as part of meeting engagement, and then I'd bring in my flexible core. The idea, you know, of four, a three or four infantry squads. Then the idea being that I would have nice even coverage, be able to supply a base of fire in any given part of the map, and then I would plug the gaps with with infantry as as mobile fire teams, as as being able to, if I've inadvertently ended up with fire superiority on one corridor by just having more fixed weapons, I'll put two of my infantry squads there and I will just force the weak point. Um, and I'm looking back at it now and I'm thinking forward deployment, um, how spotters work, that's probably the greatest way to hamstring yourself mm. in the types of decisions you can make across the board. I'm looking at it going, it's like, no, I should be putting my infantry squads on first because they're flexible. Um, and then I can park my fixed weapons where, where my enemy has exposed or has presented, I should say a weak point and just force it. Um, so that's, that's what I like to do. I typically, um, I don't deploy generally quite balanced. Uh, once, once it's all even, evened out on net, I don't deploy balanced. I try to find the weak point and I force the weak point. Um, it's this idea that I could sit there and I could I could do strong for strong. Um, uh, if you want to go out of war or whatever, you know, pit 
pit my strong point against the enemy's strong point. But in a war game on a that's dice based, more often than not, because I'm not sort of some pro competitive level player, that usually comes down to the dice deciding and some some key decisions that I've done wrong. Whereas, and I've realized that does that, that doesn't really quite work for me. It's not how I like to play. So instead, what I do is is I just go wherever the enemy is weak. I will just push that. And there have been some games where I've walked up to their board edge and then started walking across the the board because I've just opened up that corridor and I'm just going to try to um, clean sweep. Now I don't think my win rate is fifty percent or better. So I don't know if the strategy works, but it's just mm-hmm. how I like to play. Some yeah, you've made me think there for a few things. Um, number one, um, you could bait with the forward deployment themselves, which I I, I never actually considered. Um, put putting something to to get them to to commit to something else, and and then just running the unit. But the other thing, um, so you don't do the forward deployment. How does the dice mechanic work for when you're bringing? Your artillery piece, it's not coming on first wave. You didn't put the spotter in forward deployment. Is he... So you, you commit your run order to get your artillery piece on. Um, that spotter is... It's a, another order for him to move, isn't it? No, no? it's the same. Okay. It's, for, that's, for the deployment. That's the part. Okay. Correct, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's because they and, share a dice. Yeah. Wow. And so you can actually move them and deploy them independently, but at the same time. Wow. And so okay. with one with one order dice out of the bag, you can park your mortar on the bottom left corner of your six by four. Uh, and he and can just hide in a corner behind a hedge. And you can put your spotter anywhere that they can run to because they are an infantry model. So wow. they can run 12 inches. So you can okay. run them into a building, which is a horrendously bad place to put any infantry in bold action in buildings. <laughs> um, run them up against the hedgerow in some hard cover, uh, yeah. wherever okay, you need cool. them to do the line of sight. And in something like meeting engagement, where it's your ability to dish out damage, I can I find it very difficult to justify forward deploying my spotter now. Mm-hmm having read the rule book and and doubly so with what Dan's saying here about how forward deployment works once you realize it. It's yep. yeah. Um so Jacob, if you see me doing that across the hall in skulls, just throw a shoe at me or something, please. No, I I, I, I didn't know that's how it worked. Um yeah, yeah so so, so, so essentially if if the unit is put in reserve, you can't forward deploy it anyway. That's just not allowed. So yep. so that doesn't matter. Um but if your unit is in the first wave, um, then, then it can forward deploy, but you don't have to. And so what, what, where Gorchum was saying earlier, which I 100% agree with, in meeting engagement where literally none of the enemy is on the board, your spotter being on the board is simply a target, mm-hmm. and generally a target for a sniper. It's not a good place to be. Um, because the whole point of having the spotter is so you can hide the weapon team a bit more uh, yeah. and leverage the line of sight. Uh, you don't want to give that up for no return. So, mm. um, so when the dice comes up to move the the team on, yes, that spotter he's triggered on the same dice, um, and it's actually they still have to be given the same order because it comes yeah. from the same order dice. But all teams are generally going to want to move at a run to get the six inches anyway. So it, it, it's actually no different. You're going to do the run anyway. Um, mm-hmm. 
but yeah, it's it, it's very much a don't give your opponent an opportunity um, if you've got no way of getting that opportunity back in some way. Um, you're handicapping yourself, as Gorchen said. It's it's you're hamstringing yourself at the very beginning. And just just to clarify for the people who are listening, this is only for deployment. So don't think that this means that you can move your spotter and your artillery piece every turn. Correct. That is correct. Yeah. Yep. Just deployment. Yeah. Um, just them coming on the board. Um, yeah. Okay. Wow. I mean, yeah. Otherwise, you have to assign it the dice over, but that's fine. Mm. There's. There's a small little um, element of poker there that uh, I also learned playing against Matt, um, who's a very strong local player. Is this idea <laughs> that that showing your hand um, a, in a game of bolt action uh, is actually a very simple trap to fall into, um, and it gives your opponent who can read hands, such as where you're weak and where you're strong, or where you intend to be weak and strong, it if your opponent is capable of reading hands, and that's sort of what I mean by that phrase, uh, putting a spotter on your right flank in forward deployment immediately tells him where you're going to put your weapon team. At mm. the very least, he knows it's not going to be in the same firing line, which means you're going to be looking for a different angle, and there's only so many places. And if the spotter's in a completely commanding know. field of view... Uh, yeah, but if he's also in a completely commanding field of view, you're just going to hide your weapon team. and um, Matt is very good at hiding his hand and forcing you yeah. to show yours, or at least I'm I'm not exper that experienced at bolt action, and he's very experienced. He's very well versed in it, so that became that difference to me became incredibly obvious. And he very much took the time to explain it to me. He's a he's a great friendly and a, a and an instructional player to play against. Mm -hmm. um, but the part that was really uh, that was really interesting for me. By the time we got to the fourth order dice of the game on the first turn, I had realized what he had done to me and I couldn't get out of the situation. It was that obvious. Mm -hmm. And these are the sorts of things that that sometimes you just have to see or be done to you. And hopefully we're going to try to prevent that by explaining them here in these podcasts. Yeah. So hopefully try to get yeah, try to get your opponent to to show their hand if they can. Um, because I, yeah, I, I showed it to, to Matt and every other hand that I was going to play for the rest of the game. And he read me like a book and yeah, stomped me into the ground by the start of turn three. Um, it's, um, sorry, go ahead, Jacob. No, no, go, go Dan. Cause I got some, I got a different point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's quite interesting how, how many of these things in war games, um, actually relate to, uh, I guess, what would be known as um, classic military texts and strategy. So um, Sun Tzu's Art of War is obviously one of the biggest uh, classic names out there. A lot of people will go, you know, oh, yeah, Sun Tzu's Art of War, I, 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 know, I know about that. But what you're talking about there, Gorchen, um, actually relates to one of the principles in Sun Tzu's Art of War about misdirection, and it's you need to be able to, get the information to perceive what your opponent is is doing whilst hiding your information from the opponent himself. Uh, and, and because if you are armed with the information, you are likely to have a better outcome in the battle. And if your opponent doesn't understand what you're doing, more to the benefit of you in, in the outcome of that battle, 
um, or something very, very close to those lines. And um, that what you're what you're talking about there, like the the reading of a player's hand and how they're deploying and what they're doing, that's exactly what Matt's doing. He's he's look, looking at what you're doing on the board and how you're starting with your deployment and using those markers to try and understand where's your strategy, where are you going to load your flank, where are you going to put your your fixed pieces. Because I know that for your fixed pieces, I'm going to want a different arc of fire that protects me from the rest of your army, but allows me to hit those pieces. Um, and because he's done it to me too, of course. Um, and and just going through and watching him do that process um, is quite remarkable because he is very good at it. Um, and and he'll there's a couple of times where I'm like, yeah, I think I got him on the ropes, and then he does something, and I'm completely undone. Like I'm I'm the whole the whole plan just just went up the creek. Um, and uh, you know, it's, and he was planning that from two weeks ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, <laughs> like, I showed him the army list, and he went, "Okay, you're going to put those guys on the left flank in that truck, and I'm going to have the howitzer over here, uh, and then I'm going to hit that over there and follow up with the infantry from outflank." And like, he he's just very good at being able to wow. position and and sort those things out. Um, it's why I love playing him. It's a love hate relationship, but I love playing him. Um, uh, but the, all these things actually relate back to sound military doctrine um, and and military, uh, you know, things that it's a it's a real thing, which is why it works. Hmm. I think just before we move on to some more bolt action tactics, while we're on it, um, have we got any specific military uh, strategy doctrines, theorist um, suggestions? So Sun Tzu's Art of War has come up. Um, that, that I think, I think it's now actually in the business section, um, which I'm not going to make a comment on. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there's yeah, but I'm I'm actually I think that the content itself isn't copyrighted. I could be wrong about this yeah. one, but it's what what's typically copyrighted is is the is the notes, the analysis, the publication, and the editorial process. So I yeah. think you can actually get access to the art of war. Um, legally and freely um, but please fact check me on that one um my other suggestion uh or i guess the my specific suggestion would be uh, i'm going to sneak two in here because i'm like that is uh von klaswitz uh, on war uh, he was a german military strategist uh, and then the other one is um uh mad dog mattis he did uh, I think I forget what the title of the book is called, but I think it's like on his way of war or something like that. He actually applies a lot of modern business organizational practices to his military structure. He had a lot of officers that weren't assigned to platoons that were assigned to other officers as coaches. Um, and so you'd have, you know, if you were sort of a lieutenant or a captain leading a platoon or a company, um, you would have another sometimes senior officer standing right next to you going if you do that your left flank is going to be exposed not as a not as a parental sort of don't be an idiot but just i'm going to look at this differently than you um let's let's get the best outcome that we can and so that was those two are really interesting um i think that all being said most war gamers typically play uh ferdinand fox military strategy he was a french soldier who's very well known for saying my right is retreating my center is collapsing my left flank is completely in disarray the situation is excellent i will attack <laughs> sounds right 
Um, what makes Jim Mattis Mad Dog? <laughs> uh, I think uh, I actually don't think he likes that nickname. Um, he did. He he's really good. Uh, I think his actual call sign was Chaos, so he usually goes by Chaos. I'm not sure exactly how he earned Mad Dog, um, but he did a lot of. He broke a lot of rules. Um, okay. If you've seen Generation Kill and they complain about being like elite Marines riding around as like armored um, combatants in like open top Humvees, that was his idea because mm -hmm. he looked at the the situation, the, uh, the geography of Baghdad, looked at the guys he had on hand. It was like, oh, this is the best way to win this war. And everybody's like, you're, you're insane. Like the invasion's ever going to work. Of course, it was one of the fastest invasions um, mm -hmm. to have ever happened. So yeah, he's... He's a little bit insane, but in a good way, in the way that you want to be as a military commander. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I don't have any suggestions because I haven't really looked into this kind of stuff, but just for those listening, um, Sun Tzu is public domain, but not the English translation. Um, uh, okay. So um, you, you'll, you'll find partial translations that are, that are um, public domain. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's republished everywhere. I'm sure you can get it super cheap. Um, yeah, uh, what I was going to get onto back onto bolt action, and we're talking about the yeah, we should do that. Um, yeah, okay. Here's here's another one. In the in the basic deployment, what people tend to do is they leave their armor until last, and um, they might make the decision. So so hold on. Um, for your first wave, you've declared your first wave. That unit can't go down and be a reserve for second turn, right? Yeah, once it's yeah, that's a in first wave, yeah. it's it's locked in. The same as once you put something in reserve, it's locked into reserve. Mm -hmm. So what people like to do, a basic one, one of the, the first things I started doing when I played bolt action and still kind of do it, so I don't know if it's a great idea or not, is to put your tank in reserve and bring it on second or third turn. Um, or also, if you don't do that, is you leave it as the last dice and you wait for the opponent to commit his tank and then you bring yours on and maybe you get a shot or something like that. Um, so what are your thoughts on that particular function of bringing on the vehicle? I guess um, it really all depends on why is the vehicle in your list? Um, why is the vehicle um, there as part of the battle? Uh, if its purpose is to be a tank hunter, and then a support vehicle, uh, then it absolutely makes sense to hold off until the enemy armor is deployed so that you can position for advantage. Um, if you are, I often take my tanks as a, um, uh, a psychological intimidation factor. So it's, it's actually not, it's not there to specifically kill anything. It's there for the threat that it can kill something. Um, my my T thirty four with the Russians, um, it's the eighty five, so it has the the heavy anti tank gun on it. Um, that's a scary anti tank gun, and that's mm -hmm. that's gonna you know that's possibly gonna put a hole through a tiger in in the rule set that we've got. Um, I'll need a bit of luck, but I can do it. Um, it's, it's also got a very long range, and so any any small armored vehicle or medium armored vehicle uh, knows that it's going to be outgunned and outranged from that T-34. And so when, when I'm setting up with my Soviets occasionally, what I'll do is look at the 
on my deployment edge, where can the T34 make the biggest impact in, its, in that board control element? And I'll put it smack bang in the middle of that space so that you're going to be forced to hide your armored vehicles or put them in reserve. Mm. Um, in the case of my Bulgarians, um, the Panzer 3N has a light howitzer on it. Um, I essentially use it as a mobile, uh, me mobile medium mortar. Um, but it does have two machine guns, two German machine guns. And so uh, given the opportunity, I will hose down some infantry while lighthousing another unit uh, mm -hmm. of infantry. Um, so I generally will position that tank as an infantry killer opposite some blocks of infantry. Um, as what happened when I versed Wayne last week and his two A9 cruisers were, sorry, his two M24 chappies were on the uh, his left flank to counter my uh, Panzer III on the right flank, um, they messed it up because I didn't have any anti-tank that was going to be able to deal with them. Um, he got the deployment drop first, um, deployed one of his tanks centrally. I went off to the right to try and steer away from it. There was some terrain in the way. He's got another um, one. <laughs> but he's got another one, um, and I couldn't hide from that one. It, at that point, it didn't matter if I put it left or right. Um, he had the counter ready to go. Um, so it absolutely can be the right thing to do, um, but it does depend on why the tank is in your list. Um, the As you get towards like the, the light tanks and the armoured cars, I worry significantly less about those um, mm -hmm. from a psychological point of view. They, they serve a completely different purpose in the army mm -hmm. again. Um, so it does depend on what you're using it for uh, and, and where you put it. Um, but also where you put it, depending on the, the, the sort of the three strategies that I was going to be talking about um, in basic deployment plans, um, it changes in those as well. So in a balanced um, force, you probably want your armored assets towards the center so they can go left or right. So you can, you can flexibly adapt to what your opponent is going to do. If you're deliberately building, uh, let's say you are doing a weaker right of front. And what I mean by that is that the center and the right flank are deployed a little bit further back than what your left flank is. So the engagement will engage with your left first and then your right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might want to protect your armored asset and so it goes on the right flank. Or if you're going to be hunting or trying to draw something out with your armored asset, you'll put it on the left flank because you want to engage early. Mm. Um, just trying to think what else, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, the only other, I'm sure you might have some more things on the deployment strategies other than just the, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to describe what you're saying where you've got, everything's kind of spaced out. So it's even across the board. Um, but, yeah, uh, outflank as well is something that I'm having some trouble Deciding what <laughs> units to commit to it and which ones not to and how much. Um, there's a few different thoughts on that. So I, I've been on the receiving end where people have committed two, three, four units to outflank and, and that can be quite strong, especially on something like demolition because um, uh, you, yeah. you have this, this big supporting arm that's really coming for that objective. Um, and then I talked to other people like Nick, and he's on the thought process at the moment that I don't commit anything to 
outflank, it's kind of a risk. I don't know what's going to happen. I can dictate what I'm going to do if I'm and if I come strong first turn with everything, and I can take some an early initiative. Um, so you know, there's there's pros and cons to all of it. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm still in the decision making mode of how many troops I want to put on outflank. If I want to put on any, my list has changed overnight because I've silly put up a poll asking people which theater selector they want me to choose. And I've practiced one list for, you know, a month and now I'm picking another because that's become the more popular option. Um, but I will, I'll, I'll figure that out. I, I put the little challenge out there. I think it'll be fun anyway. It, it will be fun. Um, you will still, over the last month, you have still learned some things, so it's not yeah, like uh, you won't be able to apply that. Um, I'm not normally a fan of changing your list like just overnight from a poll, but I understand why you did it, and that's fine. And I will say you're not the only person uh, who has, who has, uh, I guess, made some adjustments like on the spot or... Um, yeah. Sorry, just trying to sort my display out because it's gone a bit clear. Um, yeah, who's who's done things on the spot? There's there's been quite a few at this event um, that have that just gone. I think this is going to work. I'm not sure. I haven't really play tested it. Um, that's so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gorchen. Yeah. Um, there's there's a, there's a number of you that have done the same thing. So what yeah. that should mean is that you're all going to have fun. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you're all going to be in that same boat. Um, but yeah, I, I think from an outflank point of view, the first piece of advice that I have um, specifically is if you, there we go. Cool. If you have more order dice than your opponent, mm -hmm. it's more feasible to put something into outflank. You still need to think about what that is but it means that you have very little risk of altering the order dice in the bag. So you maintain control of, of what you're doing for the, for the regular board and for your regular deployment. And you have that ace up the sleeve for, mm -hmm. that, for that one unit that, that's gonna come in. In that scenario, the tank is not a bad option to put in outflank. Mm. Uh, it can be protected for two turns, it's going to be able to come on, you know, almost halfway up if you need it to. You can wait that extra turn and bring it on just over halfway up because um, obviously it, the point is halfway, but you drive forward. Um, so, so if you, yeah, if you've got that dice advantage, it's less risky. When it's equal, um, it depends on the mission type. Mm. Really depends on the mission type. Um, if you needing to capture some objectives that are loaded up on the left or the right you know having a unit that can come in from the side is is quite good mm -hmm. um but it could just as you could just as easily get to those sometimes just by deploying everything and just running forward on the first turn and that puts you in striking distance so um yeah that one's a bit harder when it's equal dice mm. if you have less dice than your opponent and you are not a veteran force, do not outflank. And what I mean by that is the veteran level is going to keep your stuff alive a little bit longer, make sure you can keep moving, and obviously make sure you can come in from outflank um, relatively successfully. 
But when you are already short diced and you are taking potentially two or three dice, um, I wouldn't take three dice uh, if you were short diced, but um, but if you're taking one or two dice and putting them into outflank, that's one or two dice that are going to do nothing for two turns. Mm. That's a lot to lose. That's a lot to lose. Um, a good example of that is if, if you're playing a 12 dice list at 1,000 points and your opponent is playing a nine dice veteran list, let's say it's German just for argument's sake, and the German player puts a Panzer IV, uh, a truck, and a unit of grenadiers in outflank, that means they're only fighting you for two turns with six dice. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that can happen within a game, but I would back your 12 dice list to cripple the, six. the German list sufficiently enough that when those other three dice arrive, it doesn't matter. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's too far gone at that point. Um, you have six extra dice um, with which to position your force to receive his the turn before they actually hit. Um, and if you, when you're doing your deployment, are savvy, you will have put an anti-tank threat on each flank, um, so, sort of, you know, center left or center right, so that they can position to the flank. Um, so that takes care of the Panzer Four, mm-hmm. um, and then you only have to worry about the infantry. Now you're not going to you're not going to be able to guess which side the infantry are on. But if if eighty percent of your army has destroyed fifty percent of your opponent's army because the other fifty percent is essentially stuck in the back lines or in reserve, um, that's going to be very hard for them to actually make an impact. Like they might come on and destroy one of your units, but then what? The rest of your yeah. army is is deployed the down board. the field, destroying the rest of their army. So if you have less dice. Than your opponent, even if you're veteran, um, be very careful about outflank um, mm. because when you are outdiced and you choose to reserve something, um, I mean, if the mission forces you to reserve, that's different. Yeah. Um, because then, you, then you know that something's out of the fight. But when it's your choice, um, yeah, you really got to think about that. Most of the time, you want all your assets deployed. As, as fast as you can because you have six turns to use those nine dice to get your opponent down to eight dice um, and, and that's the starting point you got to get four dice off them and then you can think about doing something different um, and we talked a bit about that with dice advantage stuff before like you, yeah you don't want to fight those odds no um, any other thoughts on deployment I think when it comes to the outflank and reserve, it's again having, uh, for me, it's always been a case of having an objective and a role for each unit. And that way you can decide looking at the terrain, looking at the map, the the objective marker layout, uh, what knowledge you may have of your opponent's list. Is it'll, it'll allow you to make the reserve and outflank decision on a game basis. But at the same time, you're not deciding which units are going in reserve in our flank because that's what you decided when you built your list. You're deciding whether or not they are more useful in our mm. flank. Uh, 
Yes. And so, yeah. say for example, if you're if you're running um, an outflanking high mobility infantry assault, infantry and transports, and, you know, you might have flamethrowers, you might have a bunch of SMGs or assault rifles or whatever. If you're thinking about that unit, if you've got a road that runs right from your board edge right up to where you want to put them, I would submit there's probably no need to put them in outflank. You might put them in reserve, mm. but that gives you more control. They can come in turn two. If you want to break, if you've got an opportunity to break the hold and the objective in turn two, and you don't think they can pivot around long enough or you can, you can create a blocking force for that um, assault to work in the time, you can do that turn two. Alternatively, you could decide that turn four is better. But with yeah. outflank, you know, you're starting at turn three. You don't have the flexibility. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other, the other, uh, the flip side of that, of course, units and transports, um, you can use them as a quick reaction force if they're on the table. If you've misread your opponent's hand and by the end of turn one, um, you realize that they're going to shift shift fronts, you've misread it, you need to reposition. Sometimes having even a medium-sized squad of six or seven guys um, in a transport could be all that you need to slow down that front, slow down that advance, and so you can do something somewhere else, or or you can counterpunch on the same flank. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's about needing to make that decision on that particular uh, game, and also just very quickly evaluating if it is the right decision and pivoting if it isn't. Um, I played a game against uh, one of the mundane knights. It's, a, it's a, another quite high caliber gaming group here in Perth. I played, um, it was against Clive. And I had, this, I had this game plan in my head and everything was going according to that game plan and I still lost by a reasonable margin. And that, that's something that, that you have to think about. Just because your plan is working doesn't mean you're winning. Um, yep. and that's, that's something that, uh, that a lot of people don't realize. And I certainly didn't in that game, you know, I realized turn two, that this plan wasn't really going to win. It was weird. I was looking at it going, this is not the best strategy, but the plan's working. And so you end up in this sort of mixture of sunk cost fallacy and what's worked before has to keep working and, and credit to, to, uh, my logical biases and my logical failings. They, they proved to be correct. The plan was working, <laughs> um, and it continued to work after it had already worked. So that was all correct, except of course it didn't win me the game. So these are some things that you need to you need to really think about. Um, and, and it goes again back to what we were sort of saying about you know, some of the military strategy and stuff. If you've got a plan and it's working, just double check to make sure that you're winning the game because those two things aren't always the same. Sometimes it's the plan's fault. Sometimes it's your opponent putting you in that great situation that nobody likes to be in where they realize at turn five that you, they beat you at turn two because uh, they read your plan and they let it happen anyway and they just lured you into that trap to do whatever you yep. wanted to do. Um, so those are some things that, that I'm now thinking about when I'm deciding mm -hmm. reserve or out flank. I'm, I'm running a 12 dice list for uh, skulls, which would be the maximum. And that, again it allows me to make that decision. If I was running a nine dice list, a full veteran, for example, I wouldn't be able to make that decision. Mm -hmm. um, I would be more or less forced to not outflank or reserve. And yep. again, it, sometimes 
that makes it a little bit easier for my opponent to realize what it is that I'm doing because it's one less decision he's got to figure out or they have to yeah. figure out. Yep. Um, yeah, they can yeah. spend, spend more time. Uh, thank, thanks for that, Gorch. And I'm having a think about more uh, not necessarily coming with the game plan of the outflank. Obviously, I want to come up with something, figure out what potential units I want to use, but I'm guessing I should more take a browse at the opponent's list and look at the terrain before committing to what I had planned before I got to the table with the outflanks in particular. Yeah. You, you should always um, just have that quick check, that quick assessment um, to validate, okay, let's let's just look at the terrain. Oh, I'm actually fighting in a canyon. Uh, outflanking is probably going to be fairly safe because I can jump on top of the ridge Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know and I can shoot down, but I can't get assaulted. Um, that that sounds pretty good. If on the other hand, the center of the board held a mountain, and you were coming on from the side up against the mountain, outflanking actually generally won't hold as much benefit. Your opponent's going to have the high ground. You're going to have to work hard to get up um, from the flank. It would have been better to go up the ground. Um, from the back of the board and spend a couple of turns shooting and try and whittle the defense down, then coming on, yes, you'll be at full complement and full strength, but you'll be attacking defenders from the side who probably haven't been attacked by the main force yet. So all you're doing is taking a full strength engagement and giving them the height advantage. Um, That's not not ideal. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's obviously clashing a little bit of real world with game world but yeah it's it's that sort of idea um you know you know surround the mountain has the same problem if they're still on it and in it um you know you haven't really accomplished you cut off their line of retreat that's about it um but there's probably caves in that mountain with supplies <laughs> um, um but um i've got one more thing for outflank i guess uh and and that is um committing to one side or both Ooh. Do oh, you sorry. do you double up so, on one side? Say you got two or three okay. outflankers. Do you have one strong push on one side? Or do you even it out? What's your plan, Jacob? I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go to the club today. I'm gonna actually figure out what this list can do. Um it's, I'm gonna um, I'll read it out because uh, you know, lists have been submitted or, or they will be submitted on uh today. I'm probably not gonna publish this episode until tomorrow anyway um so uh let, let let's okay. go through um my skulls list is 10 order dice 955 points i've gone for 1941 dac armored recon so uh what this includes is instead of the traditional uh lieutenant plus two infantry squads i have to take a requirement of three armored cars so my first armored car is the 222, but it's I've shaved off the light auto cannon for points, and it's just the MG variant. <laughs> then I've got a 222 with the light auto, and then I've got an 8 rad with the light auto. So that's um, that's my first half of the force. So it's a third of the force. Um, it's it's less than 300 points. In fact, I spend a lot more on infantry, but um, these are going to have to be supporting elements to the the infantry themselves, not necessarily sure if they're going to be leading the front or if they're going to be behind the troops or whatever, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, 
obviously there's objectives all throughout this um, event. So I needed as many objective takers as I can, but ones that are strong with the caveat that I've already spent, you know, 250 points or whatever it is on, on armored vehicles. So I've got three full strength, 10 man veteran um, rifle squads, um, which are, yeah, 10 men. Um, I've just gone for no no upgrades to weapons. I, I, I've gone back and forth with a lot of like LMG lists and I, I, I they tend to not really do as much as I hope. So um, I, I found that bodies and veterans are strong and necessarily the gun doesn't matter. And in fact, rifles are really good. Um, then I've got medium mortar with the spotter. I've got a medium anti-tank gun a light howitzer and a Panzer 3G, and the Panzer 3G is the light tank, which is the A armor and the medium anti-tank gun. Um, so I'm hoping that I can, with my artillery and mortar pieces, basically secure the my side of the board um, and also utilize them for any sort of objectives that they need to capture on my side. And then really pushing in with with the with the infantry and supported by by a two 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 for each squad pretty much, um, and then maybe a, an outflanking Panzer three. I'm not sure. Yeah, it'll um, it's going to depend on the opponent you face. Yeah, definitely. It's going to depend on the terrain and whether you have a good approach vector, and it will depend on the mission being played at the time. So for, with all those, I, I guess, mobilized vehicles, mm. um, for demolition in particular, uh, putting the three armored cars, they're all wheeled, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, so putting the three armored cars and doing a split of one, two, so you put two on one flank, one on the other, and literally waiting till like the end of the turn, um, that's not a bad idea um, mm. because providing that they come onto the board, they can they can run 24 inches. And so from either side of the board, unless they put it in the middle, you're going to be able to get it. Yeah. You're going to be able to capture it. And um, that means that the worst case scenario you're going to have is a draw because they might get yours. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but th I would recommend that's not a horrible tactic, even if you mm. just went, because if you, if you need the guns at the back end, and so you just take, uh, like leave the light tank guys behind, um, and take maybe the uh, the MG guy and was it Panzer three? Yep. Yeah, you could take a Panzer three. Um, now that that adds a bit of weight onto the Panzer three, but it also gives your opponent the reason to question where's that Panzer three going. Do I need mm. to defend against it? So what you're trying to do is to trick them into focusing on the Committing. Panzer III so the armored yeah. car can run on and take the and objective. And just take it, yeah. And just take it. Um, now, it may not, you might want to bring it on at turn four instead of turn five because if they mm. put something in front of that objective, you won't be able to run through it. Mm. Um, but but look, that's not, that's not bad. Um, mm. But it, it will... The other two missions... Yeah, maybe in key positions you yeah. would outflank, but I mm. probably wouldn't. I'd probably yeah. just, um, especially at ten dice, that's almost the point. Um, 
yeah, it's too almost at the point where it's it's possibly too risky to put too much mm. in reserve mm. um, on those numbers uh, based on the conversation that we had before. Um, yeah, key positions I probably wouldn't. I'd probably yeah, just run yeah. them straight on um, mm. and just push up instead of worrying about coming in. I think there's a there's a very high risk reward play that you could do there. Um, and, and you guys know me, I'll, I like to play aggressive and risky. Yeah. Um, look, you know, uh, this is not to invalidate everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, and I absolutely would like to stress the high risk of this strategy. But one thing you could do <laughs> is, is literally park all three of your armored cars on the same outflank. Yeah. And then if you really you wanted to go, uh, really wanted to go nuts on that and really give them hammer and anvil, you also park the tank in the <laughs> on the same edge, and then you literally just you hold, just like infantry with fixed weapons are really great at doing. You set up a multi-tier defense. You sit in cover, and you just and you just you know do the neo thing, just wave them in, and then you know turn maybe turn three is not the right one. Maybe you do turn four. Turn four, you just rolling thunder in off the flank <laughs> and just start deleting everything on that flank. Gotcha. Now, this sounds really that's, fun. <laughs> that's a that's really risky because yeah. if I saw that happening, my two options were was to match your total and hope to survive yeah, yeah. against an assault like that, which you or won't. You will take you'll take some serious hits from that armor. There's no two ways about it. Even their are on the cars. Yeah, yeah, but it's like seven machine guns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You and or that's like auto cannons. Um, there's yeah. a good chance you'll be able to outmaneuver any cover bonuses, any range bonuses, because there's if you deploy center, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you deploy your infantry center in like a tier defense, I'm not going to be able to pick the board edge with any yeah, real true. certainty. Yeah. Um, but you know, if I sit there in total, I've got numbers advantage. And I'm defending, yeah. and you should never be in that position. Mm. You know what I would need to do is play into your reward payoff, rush forward, expose my flank, and try to kill the units that are already on the board. So when the armored and, cars and do come from, yeah, if the, and the yeah. armored cars do come on, I'm going to take a big hit, um, but that'll be fine. Hopefully, I'll have killed enough of yours and kept most of mine alive that your tanks will then flounder. But Look, if you were playing a, a friendly or more accurately unfriendly game, that's a really fun bit of hammer and anvil that you could do. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's interesting because um, if, I guess, if I was then playing, uh, if I saw all the armored assets and then you, even, even at the point where you said they were in reserve, at reserve, I would be cautious about whether or not you're just going to wait until... You know, if you come towards my base, I'm going to bring on seven machine guns and hose down anything. I don't yeah. care. I'm just going to I'm just going to wipe it off the board. Um, that's an option. You could actually play that defensively and put the tank and two of the armored cars in your reserve with the intent to just protect your base. Move all your infantry towards the opponent and just push through. Um, and then if they bring something on, you've got three assets to come on and 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 cause some, ha sorry, four assets to come on and cause some havoc. Um, if you told me that they were definitely going out flank, um, I would forsake my base mm -hmm. and I would take my entire army and I would rush your base because I'll just have trade. numbers, just numbers advantage and play for 
if I can get there fast enough in, in three turns before you can get to my base, um, I'll be able to hit it and, and, and potentially get the win or be in a position that when you hit mine, I can hit yours in the same turn and we'll, and we'll logger it out as a draw. The difference will be those bonus points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's going to completely change everything. So, so that's yeah. um, that's because because yeah, normally it's just destruction of the base and it's fine, but um, but yeah, so that that'll be quite interesting. I think there's a few lists that might give you a hard time. Um, yeah, if you decide to put that many in reserve, like Gorgian said, that's a it's a big risk. Um, it also risks that when you go to bring them on, that you pass their morale checks to bring yes. them on. Um, <laughs> If they come on piecemeal, it's going to hurt, um, but not then. <laughs> um, so uh, I've got a few things for you, Dan or Gorchin, whoever can answer this best. Um, so for demolition itself... Anyone, anyone else feel like Jacob's just trying to get information out of us to play, like to get the, the workaround of the event here? <laughs> this, this, it's a prime, just interrogate the TO. It's like, how do I yeah. win your event? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's J- Jacob. You get yep. you get here's three more box. questions. Just otherwise, we're going to disqualify you. <laughs> Fine. Not not disqualify him. Not disqualify him. <laughs> just negative He'll two points. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that you will still only have one win over the whole month. <laughs> yeah, that, that, <laughs> we're going into what July now, so uh, <laughs> we'll see how we go. Um, okay, demolition itself. Uh, yes. can, can the can either player block the whole base with um, intervening models? Yeah, absolutely they can. Yep. Yeah. So that's one of the strategies is is to to take. Uh, you can do it with one infantry unit. It's better with two, on the yep. basis that um, if one routes or gets blown up, there's another there. But you you can actually completely surround the base with the. 10, 12 models. Um, I've done it before with my free rifles. Bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> um, oh, man, they evaporated quick. Um, but you essentially take your, your 50 mil objective, put the unit around it, um, and what that does, it does two things. First of all, it means that you can't actually touch that base physically unless mm. you kill that unit in an assault. Um because you're not allowed to approach within one inch of a unit normally. So it, it creates a two-inch barrier off your objective. Um, it does make that unit a target. So if you're going to do that, um, veteran infantry is nice. Uh, so if you get assault engineers with body armor, is better, because they basically need natural sixes to kill them. Just if you're going to do that to any of the Soviet players watching, your opponents will get extremely frustrated if you also put a commissar, a lieutenant, and a medic within six inches of that objective, <laughs> just, just so you know. Because um, then you're, you know, obviously six is to hurt them, but then six is to save. They've got the morale boost of the lieutenant, and if they somehow fail the order, the commissar shoots someone. Um, now, you don't get to use the medic from the commissar, I tried that. It doesn't work, but um, <laughs> it's it's extremely resilient. So, so, um, so the medic ignores the fact that there's been a uh, casualty. He was meant to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that, that's that's specifically for um, 
It's on the rules interaction from the Commissar and it was designed deliberately to avoid certain other triggers as well. Mm, so mm. if the Commissar actually performed a shooting attack, rolled to wound, rolled to hit, rolled to wound, um, uh, and that then caused a casualty, um, that means that the unit by application of the rules, like a friendly fire scenario from a FUBAR, that unit then has to take a pin. Uh, it would then potentially need to take morale checks. It would then, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. The Commissar is written up so that it's an exception to those rules and doesn't follow them. He simply auto kills a guy. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the medic's not allowed to attempt to save any of that because the medic's only allowed to um, attempt to save a casualty caused by shooting, um, mm -hmm. damage caused by shooting. Mm -hmm. um, that Now, those explanations still don't help you, by the way, if you do that and you put all three of those officers supporting that unit. Um, what was best about that unit was they had two Panzer Faust and anti-tank grenades. So even when they did bring hey. something on <laughs> and a flamethrower. Um, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good demolition defense. The, the flip side of that is, of course, that's that's four order dice yeah. parked in defense. And oh, uh, it's the almost, Soviet... It was almost yeah, how many 400 points. points? Yeah, yeah. So if you were doing something like that in skulls, and you were able to get another eight order dice with some cheap transports and stuff, you're talking what six hundred points at eight dice to try to take the opponent's demolition objective. Yeah, and they're probably all inexperienced rifles. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, to get six hundred points and eight order dice, they pretty much have to be. They pretty much have to be. Yeah. Um, but it, either way, either way. Um, <laughs> So yeah, you can you can surround the base and stop it. You can also I've seen people do with for example with your armored cars, um, you could do a parking lot around the mm -hmm. objective, mm -hmm. um, because then you, even if they attempt to assault you, um, actually, okay, I'm gonna yeah, to it right. I'm now. gonna do the well. No, I'm gonna do something I don't normally do as a TO because I know this is gonna air after the event almost likely. So yeah. there's no impact of me going on about this except for you two. And I'll know if you're doing it because I'll watch you. <laughs> so, Jacob, you have, what was it, four vehicles? Yeah, four vehicles. Yep. So what happens I know this when is going. Vehicle, <laughs> yeah. What happens when a vehicle becomes a wreck? Terrain, right? Yeah. Imp specifically impossible terrain. Yeah. And so you can use, you can use soft skin transports um, park them in front of an empty, park them empty in front of an enemy tank, block off a street. You give your opponent an order dice, but your tank can't, their tank can't continue down that street, for example. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not where I was going. It's better than that. No, no, no. I know where you're going, but that was the clue. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's a clue. It's, it's a bit different in that instance because, um, for example, if you do it with a transport, um, they, they get removed and captured as opposed to destroyed if they're closer to the enemy. So they would just move up to them and auto-kill. Um, or sorry, I would so, just move up to it. So transports, in that case, I thought they were destroyed, not removed. Uh, when they were captured. Because yeah, in that case, that specific example wouldn't work. But yeah, you, you sacrifice vehicles as an, and turn them into impossible mm -hmm. terrain. Use them as yeah. roadblocks or... Yeah, Force so um, uh, any kind of enemy other than a friendly unit, aside from an empty transport, uh, another empty transport, sorry, they're automatically removed from the battle and counters destroyed. Um, removed. So I, 
oh. remove is probably the word that I would um, think we'd be caught on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. But um, you could see where I was going with that. Yeah, because destroyed yeah. isn't actually a damage result. Um, it's yeah. a it's a status of the vehicle. However, when a vehicle becomes wrecked from damage, so being an assault or howitzer or um, any form of damage they're going to try and do so they can get through to your objective. Um, uh, either way, um, a vehicle that is wrecked counts as impassable terrain. So you could just park your armoured cars and your tank in a square around the objective. They're not allowed to assault it um, unless they've got, got any tank weapons, they're not going to be able to assault it well. Uh, they can't come within an inch. Your vehicles are a couple of inches wide. Um, and if they do destroy them, then they're not transports, so they're not going to get removed from the table. They'll just become impassable wrecks, which means that you can't cross them, which means that you can't get to the objective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't play that kind of party. That's, but that's I, just I didn't say that. <laughs> um, no, I saw... It is. It yeah. is. <laughs> they're the rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I saw that opportunity very quickly. Like I played a game of demolition, and then I looked at the stuff, and I was just like, "Man, you could you could really do a dirty right there and then." I, I've I will seen... say, if if you're fighting Matt with his fins, do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way you'll get a draw. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then if he says anything so much as a syllable about it, I'd be like, Dan told me to do it. Here's the TO. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll hear about it and I'll deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, on demolition, something I didn't think about, but I've I've kind of uh, realised um, on playing it a week or so ago, is traditionally I will place my base in wherever is the best cover. That might be on the left flank and that might be on the right, which sucks for outflank. So it's best to just put it in the dead center on your edge. Unless you're playing against fins. In which case, it sort of doesn't help at all. But um, Or if you are playing fins, two units protect that base, at least. Hmm. Two infantry units, because he can only attempt to kill one of them and then you just hose down and try and kill the rest. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's still, it all depends on the terrain, um, really, but also Mm. what your opponent has. Um, if you look at your opponent's list, minimal armored vehicles, no transports, put it left or right. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you should be protecting it with at least one unit. Mm. Um, one infantry unit is easier to deal with. Mm. Unless it's a flamethrower. Um, yeah. Typically. If, if you see him with a flamethrower, just put yourself the other side of the objective so that he has to get close to try and shoot over it <laughs> and then shoot him back. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd, if they've got mobile threats um, in, in, that, in that sort of vehicle variety, um, mm. yeah, you don't want to put it left or right. Yeah, mm. It's too easy for them to move on 12, drop a unit out 6 to 18 inches up the board. And now they can do an assaulting action um, next yeah. turn after they would have shot you up this turn. Um, yeah, mm. but that's fairly standard. So I think unless 
have you got any other questions, Jacob, around Outflank? And that's that's genuine. That's not yeah. a yeah. that's not a stop stop bothering the TO about it. But that's that's a genuine genuine thing. Have you got any other questions? Um, no, I, I I just thought it's it's interesting making the decisions between outflanking or not, um, the decisions between uh, reserves and not. You know, the, the 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 counter is that you could have everything taking the initiative if you don't play that game, and you can kind of dictate it in your own way. But obviously, there is a there's a huge strength to something appearing from which side you don't know. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it's something I need to play with, uh, and 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 in variations. I I need to I need to try out flanking on both sides at the same time. I need to try out flanking with you know a heavy push on one, and then I need to need to also play games where I don't play that at all, and then then try and weigh up what's going to work for different lists, different terrain, different scenarios, and that kind of thing. Yeah, see, that's that's an interesting. Um, segue to be honest um, into probably one of the other basic deployment plans um, in terms of yeah what side specifically. So I was thinking about I was just going to say I mean I generally only go through one side. I generally only outflank on one side, and I just have to be very tactical about which side I choose. Most of the time I get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes I get it really wrong. Um, but I normally do that when I deploy in something called refused flank. Um, and so generally what that means is I'm taking majority of the units on the board, like like the high majority, 90%, and they are either on the left flank or the right flank. Not much in the center, yep. nothing on the other flank. And so your opponent looks at the board and they go you know, in the square, Dan's entire army is in this box, even though he's got, you know, 12, 15, 16 feet to play with. It's all in this little box. Um, and that, going back to what we were talking about with Matt, he would look at that and go, I'm going to get pushed extremely hard on that flank, extremely hard. And the, the one of two ways of the, using outflank with that deployment is to put it on the same side in which case you are trying to just break it. You're trying to just break it through and create essentially a line of a line of attack in the opponent's flank. The other option is to you know, spread it out maybe a tiny bit more towards the center and actually put the outflanking unit on the other flank. So you've got some board presence there. And that the purpose of doing that within the war game is in case you need to protect an objective or in case, because you've loaded your flank up so much on the other side, your opponent peels off to deal with that, and so they start moving things back towards their center off their left flank, which mm. means that the right flank is now not engaged. You come on behind their defensive line, and you start causing all sorts of mayhem. Um, but generally, I have to make that decision at the start of the game before any of the deployment has happened, I just know in my game plan, looking at the terrain, am I in a better position to try and spread out a little bit more and have something come on from the right flank, which is opposite to where I'm going to bulk up? Or do I just stack everything on this side? And essentially, what you do is you, you take a six-foot board as the frontage 
of what your battle line would have been and you instead turn it to a four foot frontage and you put your entire force across a more condensed mm. space and the theory is that your opponent is only fighting with a two foot frontage and so i have a four foot frontage that can zero in and apply a lot of pressure to break that flank whilst his flank out here is swinging around to engage with me i've already dealt with a large chunk of the army it's just gone yeah, yeah. um tricky to do sometimes in bolt action because you've got to think like you got to consider um obstacles in particular because they slow your mm -hmm. infantry down um but if you, if it's open on that on that run on that flank <clears throat> you can easily take two units and, and run them 12 inches on and that's a big problem um mm -hmm. anyone that's had a unit run 12 inches on on their flank at the end of a turn um knowing that they're in position to do something next turn that's not good um and cavalry is even worse because um, mm. they go 18. <laughs> or motorbikes, Jacob, a motorbike yep. unit. Um, I, I've been thinking actually, about it. The, mo <laughs> the motorbikes are even more frustrating because because you normally normally bring outflanking units on at the end of the turn unless mm. you need to deliver on something. Mm. Uh, if you need to deliver on an objective because of time or whatever, then you do that. But the reason you bring them on towards the end is they can leverage the double move, which is the coming on, do their shooting action, and then at the top of the next turn, you immediately activate them again and you follow up. Um, motorcycles are frustrating in that because they come on, they might have some shooting, mm -hmm. but then it's a fresh turn. So they can use their escape reaction. Mm. They all just disappear. You know, you just, there's no reprisals for them. They just they just come on, harass, and then get lost. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, I haven't figured the best way out to deal with them yet. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that refused flank can be quite powerful. Um, it's much more powerful against an army that doesn't have mobility. Minimal armor, no transport. Um, lots of, if they've gone heavy on team weapons or fixed assets, it's perfect against those armies because they can't reposition. Um, and, and, what you want to do is try and load up your flank uh, a small bit at a time uh, until they put most of their fixed assets down. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen until they've done all the infantry. So you're just going to have to pick a side. But occasionally they'll do it wrong <laughs> and mm -hmm. they'll put their fixed assets down first. And you can just look at it and go, that's less scary than that one. And so we're just going to, everything's on the right flank and I'm just, I'm just going to bring something on. Um, I'm going to hammer that poor unit in the first turn that I drop on. And like, people, people putting units in backboard edges is my favorite. It's my absolute favorite because it's sort of, it, the, there's obviously reasons for it. I do it myself, but in terms of the vulnerability that that creates, um, it's almost an instant order dice if you've got the ability to drop something in outflank. Um, mm -hmm. very easy to convert that over and then the other um, the other classic sort of deployment battle plan uh, which is we sort of hinted at it before but this is a proper uh, hammer and anvil sort of setup so one flank uh, is set up to be the stronger uh, and essentially the, the anvil what, what you're going to try and get the opponents to hit and just hold uh, Gorchin mentioned it before. This is where, like, your fixed infantry with their and their weapon teams for support, you advance them up into position and you do not move. That that is just where the position is. That's where you hold 
Um, that's that's where it all starts. And the idea is that the enemy hits that and stops or bounces. Bounces is better, but but hits that and stops. And then your your left or right wing, whichever you've chosen to be the, the swinging hammer element, um, they then force and push the enemy onto the hand. Um, so you, that's it's a little bit trickier in um, in board gaming in bolt action particularly, um, and that's mainly because aside from vehicles with guys in there as transports, you don't have a lot of I guess really fast moving elements to to really get the force of that hammer. Um, it's one of the reasons why outflank is used to do that mm. um, is because you can you can get that that I guess the the uninterrupted force coming in that you have to wait. Um, any armies with cavalry can actually do this extremely well. Um, so because because they've got that eighteen inch move, they can position better, uh, mm-hmm. and they generally those cavalry can charge into combat, and they're brutal when they do that. They charge eighteen. Um, they generally are all t- um, either tough fighter or have some other close combat efficiencies. Um, uh, but 18 inches, man, that's, it's such a big sweep on the board. Um, and so when that swings around, um, generally they'll break whatever unit they've hit and your hammer's already swinging because now they have to deal with the fact that there's cavalry there, but I'm still being shot at by the gun line. And so the gun line moving, if, if the hammer is swinging in from the left, um, you've got left or right there. Yeah. That'll be you. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's coming coming in from the right and your anvil's here yeah. and the enemy's obviously lined up here, right? So if the cavalry have hit and they've broken the first unit, this anvil gun line, everything it needs to do is put pins on the next unit mm-hmm. so that the cavalry can hit it without it being a problem. They'll break that unit and then these guys shoot the next unit. And so you, you slowly work through the flank of the enemy, pinning it in place, hitting it with cavalry, pinning it in place, hitting it with the cavalry. It'll obviously take a couple of turns to do that. You may find the enemy breaks. <coughs> you may find that the enemy breaks before you actually get through all those units um, or does something different. But but that's that's the idea. And that comes from, um, I mean, the hammer and anvil stuff has been around since ancient times. You know, got the phalanx there, use the cavalry to push things into the phalanx um, and hit them on the side, you know, hold break on the flank um it's tantamount to a lot of war games to be fair but um mm. but th- it requires a bit more practice in bolt action because you can't move your entire army all at once <laughs> definitely some um interesting deployment options now to decide which one to use <laughs> and it, it's it's not all of them so earlier on i referenced about um uh, like weaker side deployments and trying to get certain parts of your force to engage before the others to give them time to maneuver. You can do that on the the right, the center, or the left flank um, just by adjusting up and down how far away those units deploy. Because yeah. um, essentially, the closer you, you are to, to the, the enemy... Full range. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The closer you are to the enemy, the more likely it is that that unit is going to hit contact first or get shot at first. So you can actually control that and, and move things. Um, but yeah, it's there's a whole bunch of other stuff like we're not even getting into the types of units and weapon options that you can use to support and um, combined warf combined arms warfare in bolt action is extremely important extremely important um, 
I know people complain about light machine guns or certain other weapons not being as effective as what they want them to be. Um, the reality is for every unit that doesn't have a light machine gun, yes, you could put two other rifles in instead. Absolutely. Yeah. And technically you gain three of the four shots because the loader now doesn't have to load. So you get, you get three shots, but you can still only shoot 24 inches. Mm-hmm. And your, your optimal range is still only 12 inches. Um, sometimes in a lot of cases you want to be engaging before that you want to be engaging at 18 to 36 inches um not for damage but for the pins to 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 force some form of suppression on the opponent so what i found really difficult with my bulgarian force um is i've got light machine guns in the squads but i'm only able to get one light machine gun within those squads I don't have a medium machine gun to throw down additional long range fire. And after that, I've only got howitzer and mortar um, really to provide pin support. So my enemies are generally getting closer with less pins on them um, mm-hmm. as opposed to my Russians where I have that machine gun that's able to just put a couple of shots in. I've got a couple of machine guns in each squad which are able to just make sure that I've got that dice conversion into a pin. Um, and I'm finding that's quite pivotal in, um, you know, in how the army performs and what I need to do to deploy. Um, but um, yeah, so it, it's it's quite interesting. It's there's a lot there that we probably even haven't touched on, but mm. we'll leave that alone. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's a great discussion on um on deployment and options and probably um i think we'll leave it at there for the strategy for today yeah um yeah. and we we can pick up on a on a a whole new point for the next episode hopefully in person when, when we talk about um when we get to other types of theater selectors and platoons then we can start looking at something different so like anti-tank gun platoons would deploy mm-hmm. totally different to a regular army armored columns are able to deploy totally different to a regular army um, just because of the flexibility that those things offer or don't offer. Um, but yeah, we'll leave that. We'll come back to that. Mm. All right. Um, if we've got nothing else, I think we might call the episode. So um, that was the Historical Miniature Gamers podcast, episode four, Road to Skulls. Hope you enjoyed it. And um Hope to see many of you at the event in two weeks.